Well, I think it's obvious that Valentine's Day is uh, right around the corner. So what are you going to get your sweetheart? Now, I have to admit that after 49 Valentine's Days, uh, 49 because I sent Marilyn a secret Valentine a couple of years before we're married, that we'll probably just exchange cards. I do trust, however, that we will actually buy them rather than just show them to each other in the card store, which we have been known to do. <laughs> but if you're going to give a gift to your Valentine, how will you find that perfect gift? How do you determine what is or what isn't a great gift? Well, just think back to a special gift that you've received or that you've given in the past. What, what made it special? What made it a great gift? Well, when thinking about what makes a gift great, I came up with three things. And the first thing is that it has to be something you don't already have. You know, even a tie might be a great gift if you don't have one. And a Rolex might just be another trinket in your jewelry box if you already have several. So it should be something you don't already have. Next, it has to be something you want or need. If you don't want a diamond ring, it wouldn't make a great gift. Now, you may not know that you want or need something until you get it. You know, we've all received a gift we didn't know we wanted, only to later wonder how we ever got along without it. But if you don't want something after you get it, it's not a great gift, no matter how valuable it might be to someone else. And finally, to be a really great gift, it has to be something you can't get for yourself. Now, Marilyn and I used to go through a little game during the weeks before major gift-giving time. Whenever we would buy something for ourselves, one of us would invariably take it and say, sorry, you can't have it until Christmas or your birthday or whatever. And it is always nice to find something under the tree with your name on it, but if you bought it yourself, it's really not much of a gift. And even if you just put off buying something you want so it can be used as a gift, that's not going to make a great gift either. A great gift is one that you can't buy or make for yourself. So there you have it. The threefold formula for finding the perfect gift. Make sure it's something they don't have, something they want or need, and something they can't get for themselves. Now, obviously, that's not the point this morning's sermon. But it does tie in to something we're going to discover today because the text for today speaks of a very special gift that God wants to give you. And it's a gift that meets all three criteria of a great gift. If you haven't already accepted it, the gift he wants to give you is one you don't have, one you desperately need, and certainly one you cannot provide for yourself. Paul makes all this clear in the first three chapters 
of Romans. He's already demonstrated our need for this gift, pointing out that without it we are either unrighteous or self-righteous. And now he reveals what the gift is. The gift of being justified, of being made righteous in God's eyes. And as we finish out chapter 3, we're going to discover what this gift does for us, what it does for God, and what it does for mankind. Wrapping up the third chapter of Romans, beginning with verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. Now, did you get all of that? No, I doubt that you did. You know, theologians have been grappling with that one sentence for centuries. And it's probably the most important sentence ever written. Well, we're not going to be able to plumb the depths of it today, but we are going to explore its surface, and I think that'll be enough for most of us. Paul begins... But now, and quite frankly, we are ready for the but now. Up to this point, Romans has been pretty depressing. Paul has been working very hard to make us realize just how lost we are and how everyone in the world is lost as well, apart from what he is going to now say. But even when he begins... We cringe because he says, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of God has been manifested, has been shown by the law and the prophets. Now, that sounds kind of scary to me, the law and the prophets. How would you picture the righteousness of God being manifested by the law and the prophets? No doubt your first thought is one of judgment, of a righteous God thundering down judgment, condemning us through the law and the declarations of his fiery prophets. But that's really not the picture Paul is painting here. He goes on, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. He's not just talking about the righteous character of God being revealed. He's talking about a righteousness from God that is being made available through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God isn't just something he has. It's something he wants to give us. And it's something we need. The law. And the prophets, the entire Old Testament, made it clear that no one was righteous. The law gave us the standard whereby to judge ourselves, and the prophets told us how we measured up. 
Well, Paul affirmed that judgment by stating, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were made in the image of God to reflect His glory, but we all sinned and fell short. And when we sinned, we lost the privilege of open fellowship with a righteous God. The law and the prophets, however, also made it clear that God was going to make a way for that fellowship to be restored. God was going to make it possible for us to be justified, to be viewed by him just as if I'd never sinned. That would indeed be a great gift, something we didn't have, something we needed, and something we could not provide for ourselves, a gracious gift, one we certainly didn't deserve that would be made possible only through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And this was done when God displayed Jesus on the cross as the propitiation, as the atoning sacrifice needed to pay the penalty for our sin. Through faith in his sacrifice, the shedding of his blood on our behalf, we can receive the gift of righteousness. We can be viewed by God as righteous, even though we are, in fact, unrighteous, because he has made his righteousness available to us through his son. This is amazing. God shares his righteousness with us, because in and of ourselves, we never do everything right. And we have to acknowledge that. We have to be made aware of the fact that we fall short of the image of God. Our life on its own does not bring glory to God. You know, there are moments when his glory is reflected, but there are also moments when the shadows come. And no one can see God in our life. We need a gift he makes possible. Now, he does it in a way that preserves his own righteousness as well when he gives us that righteousness. And that's what the gift of righteousness does for God, which is interesting. The second half of verse 25 and then 26. This was to demonstrate his righteousness Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The writer of Proverbs said, He who justifies the wicked... And he who condemns the righteous, both of them alike, are an abomination to the Lord. And he who says to the wicked, you are righteous, people will curse him. Nations will abhor him. People 
nations, and God himself recognize that you cannot simply declare a guilty person to be innocent. To do so is to pervert justice. Even having someone declared not guilty when many think he's guilty upsets us greatly. The law of justice demands that the guilty pay for their crimes. And a judge who willingly and knowingly lets the guilty go free is an unrighteous judge. So is God unrighteous in calling us righteous when he knows we're not? Some might think so. You know, we certainly saw God judge sin in the Old Testament, the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, the earth, swallowing up those who rebelled against Moses. But he also overlooked a lot of sin. If he hadn't, none of us would be here today because the penalty for sin, any sin, is death. So how could God pass over some sins and remain righteous, remain just, He could only do so by knowing that the penalty for those sins was going to be paid. He could be patient. He could hold off judgment for a time, knowing that his son was going to pay for the sins of those who would trust in him. That's why God was patient before the cross. And that's why he's patient even now. Before the cross, he knew there were many who were trusting that he would provide the lamb to take away their sins. And after the cross, he knew there would be many who would come to understand what he had done for them and would therefore express faith in the fact that he paid for their sins on the cross. The cross, therefore, was a demonstration of the righteousness of God. Through it, he remained just, a righteous judge who couldn't overlook sin forever, but yet a judge who could offer to the unrighteous a way to be considered righteous. He could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And that is what the gift of righteousness did for God. So what does it do for mankind in general? Let's read on. 27 through 31. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No. But by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since indeed, God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be. On the contrary, we establish the law. Again, sometimes the phrasing in the book of Romans makes our heads spin. And we have to chew it and chew it and chew it. But there's some amazing things in this book. We've talked about that before. 
And we've just read something that's pretty overwhelming. And something that a, a Bishop Hanley Mool wrote in 1894, which I think is kind of cool. He says, The harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of God's glory, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you at the crest of an alp, but you are as little able to touch the stars as they. What these verses did was put us all on the same playing field. So where then is boasting? How can we boast about our righteousness? It's gone. It's gone. It's excluded. No one is able to become righteous enough through obedience to the law to be able to fellowship with a righteous God. You know, we might be able to appear righteous enough to hang out with other people who appear to be righteous and think of ourselves as above those others out there. But none of us can become righteous enough to fellowship with a righteous God. No one can do enough good to work their way to heaven. It's impossible. We are all in the same boat. We are all lost, unrighteous, in and of ourselves. No one is any better before God than anyone else. We all need to be justified before he can accept us. And the only way anyone can be justified is through faith in the one who is able to justify, and that is God himself. He is the only one who can declare us acceptable in his sight. And our obedience to the law has nothing to do with our acceptability because no one can obey it perfectly. We talked about that last week. And Gentiles don't even have the law, the Mosaic law. But they are just as acceptable to God as are the Jews if they come to him by faith. In fact, that's the same way Jews find acceptability with God. It's their faith, not their obedience to the law, that makes them acceptable. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as being righteous. Abraham screwed up numerous times. In reading through the Old Testament again this last year, I was shocked by not only his behavior, but what came from his behavior. There are times he really messed up. He told his wife to lie about the relationship twice and put her at risk. <laughs> and by doing so, he became a rich man. It's a crazy convoluted story. But in spite of his faults, he did trust God. And because of that, God considered him a friend. Wow. I can become a friend of God by simply trusting God. I don't have to work my way into a relationship with him by obeying a list of rules that I can't obey anyway. I just have to have faith that he 
will find a way to accept me. And we know how that was done. It was through the gift of his son to us. That's God's gift. God's gift to us, to everybody. And we all come to God on the same basis. There's no group of people who have a a special ticket to heaven. No man comes to the Father but through Christ. Paul's going to make that very, very clear in the next few chapters. He's going to hammer away at this. Again, Romans is a tough book, but it's such an important book. Important book. But until that actually becomes clear, you know, some might think, well, if the law didn't work for the Jews and the Gentiles didn't need the law, that means the law is pretty useless, isn't it? Well, Paul's response is an emphatic, may it never be, or like I'd like to see it translated, God forbid. This does not make the law useless. What it does is it it proves that the law does exactly what God intended it to do. The law makes everyone aware of the fact that they are unrighteous before a righteous and holy God. It demonstrates the fact that no one can be made righteous through works of the law. And it forces everyone who would come to God to come to him on the same terms, his terms. It forces us to acknowledge our need for grace. And it makes us willing to accept the gift of righteousness. And by doing so, we all become debtors of God's love and forgiveness. That then becomes the motive of our life. It's not legalism. It's not fear. It's a love for a God who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. A God who has given to us the perfect gift. We are all sinners. Saved by grace. A grace that is greater than all our sin. And that, my friend, is God's gift to us. That gift has been offered. And we offer it even today. If you are here this morning and you feel unclean in the presence of a holy God... I invite you to come. Allow yourself to be washed clean through the blood of Christ and be made acceptable to holy God. He wants to do that for you. He's offering it to you. He's offering to you a grace, something you could never earn and never deserve that's greater than whatever sin you've come to acknowledge in your life. We don't emphasize the uh, invitation time heavily every Sunday. But I don't want you to ignore the fact that if you need forgiveness, if you've acknowledged the fact that you are separated from a holy God because of things you've done in your life, I invite you to come and receive a grace that's greater than your sin. Let's stand.